Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. You can't know to a girl like me. Handsome, dazed, and to die for. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. Mm, but a kiss can be even deadlier if you mean it. You're the second man who killed me this week. But I've got seven lives left. I tried to save you. Mm, it seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead. <laughs> or deeply resentful. Maybe you should retire. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Emma and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 183, Batman Returns. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, welcome back if you are a regular returning listener of this podcast. Thank you so much for choosing this podcast. Thank you so much for returning, ha ha ha, if you are a returning listener to Verbal Diorama for the history and legacy of Batman Returns. Yes, Batman is also returning to this podcast. 30 episodes ago, I did an episode on Batman and the surrounding Batmania that occurred with Batman. It's an absolutely fascinating story. That story continues in this episode. And this episode was supposed to originally come out a couple of months ago. Uh, unfortunately, it just kept getting bumped. And then I was like, well, it's kind of a Christmas movie as I'm going to come into. So why not put it as the very first movie of December? But before we jump into Batman Returns, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone 
who listened and downloaded the most recent episode of this podcast on Let the Right One In and also Super Troopers as well. Super Troopers especially has just done so phenomenally well. You could not predict the level of interest in Super Troopers. So basically what I'm doing essentially is we're going from the Troopers cat game to the movie that introduced an iconic Catwoman, as well as a penguin. And Batman is also in this movie too. Interestingly, for the least amount of time, any of his movies. So Batman is in this movie for 31 minutes and 15 seconds. This movie actually has more Catwoman than Batman. But there is a reason why the villains are more prominent in this movie. And I'm going to come to that story. So, without further ado, here's the trailer for Batman Returns. And remember, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. But a kiss can be even deadlier if you meet it. of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. she can sink her claws into. You're getting into a girl like me. He plots a foul reign of destruction. My dear penguins, thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all of Gotham! Thirty-three years after the wealthy Cobblepots threw their deformed infant son into a sewer, Gotham's Christmas festivities are interrupted by a gang of circus performers attempting to kidnap Max Shrek, a corrupt businessman and celebrated local figure. While Batman foils their first attempt, Shrek is taken to the sewer lair of the Penguin, that infant that infant who was discarded 33 years prior, and they agree to work together to take over the city politically. 
When Shrek's awkward secretary, Selena Kyle, finds out about his corrupt business dealings, he murders her and she returns as Catwoman intent on revenge. With Batman foiling their plots, Penguin and Catwoman team up to take him on. Let's run through the cast. We have returning as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Of course, we have Michael Keaton. Danny DeVito as Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. Penguin. Michelle Pfeiffer as Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman. Christopher Walken as Max Schreck. Michael Goff as Alfred Pennyworth. Pat Hingle as James Gordon. And Michael Murphy as the mayor. Batman Returns has a screenplay by Daniel Waters. A story by Daniel Waters and Sam Hamm, based on characters created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger and published by DC Comics, and was directed by Tim Burton. So at this point, I suppose I'd better go through a brief history of Batman, and I do go into this in way more detail in episode 153, which is on the previous Batman movie, which I would highly recommend you listen to. But if you can't or you don't have time, here is a previously on Double Diorama. So Batman, along with Superman, is probably one of the most recognisable superheroes of all time. The Dark Knight, the Cape Crusader, the Defender of Gotham, whatever you call him, the character of Bruce Wayne and his ongoing efforts to rid Gotham City of crime. The tragedy surrounding the murder of his parents is one of the most well-known superhero origin stories of all time. In 1938, Superman debuted in Action Comics number one, and by early 1939, the success of Superman led to National Comics Publications, aka the precursor to DC Comics, wanting more superheroes. Bob Kane drew a character wearing red. He named the character Batman. He showed his drawings to Bill Finger, who suggested the removal of the red, replacing it with black, and giving him a cowl instead of a simple face mask and a cape instead of wings. It was Bill Finger who gave Batman his famous alter ego, the billionaire Bruce Wayne. Batman was teased with an image in Action Comics number 12 and would debut in Detective Comics number 27 in a featured story called The Case of the Chemical Syndicate in May 1939. Together with Superman, Batman was a cornerstone of comics and the company was experiencing a huge wave of success. He received his trademark utility belt in July 1939 and his first vehicle, the Batplane, in September 1939. His tragic origin story was published in November 1939 with the death of his parents. That backstory was written by Bill Finger. It was also Bill Finger who introduced a sidekick for Batman, which Bob Kane was initially against, but when Robin debuted, sales of the comics nearly doubled and the kid's sidekick was born. And despite you thinking I might not be talking about Robin in this episode, I am going to be talking about Robin a little bit later as pertains to Batman Returns as well. Batman received his own solo title on the 25th of April 1940 as Batman number one. It also introduces classic villains Joker and Catwoman. She would be referred to as the cat in that particular comic. Bob Kane would sell away the rights to Batman in exchange for a mandatory byline on all Batman comics and has been associated with the character in an ongoing fashion ever since. Bill Finger wasn't so lucky and despite being around since day one and a limited acknowledgement in the 60s, he would receive no official credit by DC. And it actually took until 2015 for DC to finally acquiesce and give Bill Finger the credit he deserved. His first big screen credit was Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and a small screen credit in the second season of the TV show Gotham after a deal was worked out with the Finger family. 
Because these cinematic outings for Batman would not be possible without Bill Finger's work and involvement, for me personally, I feel it's important to go some way to honouring and commemorating his work. I do go into the story about Bill Finger in a lot more detail in the previous episode on Batman, but now we're up to speed and can move from 1989 and the huge commercial success of Batman, let alone Batmania, where the straightforward gold and black logo became commonplace on every t-shirt, trading card and toy store window. Batman was a phenomenon that had never before been seen. The Dark Knight had achieved pop culture icon status, and so of course this led to the inevitable sequel. But originally it wasn't inevitable that Tim Burton would return to the franchise. Because Tim Burton was opposed to sequels. He would say, quote, Sequels are only worthwhile if they give you the opportunity to do something new and interesting. It has to go beyond that really, because you do the first for the thrill of the unknown. A sequel wipes all that out, so you must explore the next level, unquote. Nevertheless, Warner Brothers ploughed ahead with plans for a sequel after the phenomenal success of Batman and planned to start filming in May 1990. Warner Brothers brought the existing Batman sets at Pinewood Studios in London for $2 million and kept them under 24-hour guard while they planned their sequel, which they commissioned Batman writer Sam Hamm to write the script. Hamm's various scripts for the then-titled Batman 2 included the ongoing relationship between Bruce Wayne and Vicky Vale, Harvey Dent becoming Two-Face, and also introduced Robin. Warner Brothers wanted the character of Penguin. Both Ham and Burton wanted Catwoman. Ham also introduced the Christmas setting. Two drafts were sent to Tim Burton, who was working on directing Edward Scissorhands at the time. And these drafts retained the elements from Batman, the psychotic and violent criminals, a highly sexualised femme fatale, and the character of Batman would be more akin to his comic book roots. He would be strictly no kill, he would protect the homeless, and he would uncover the secrets of his family tree. Penguin and Catwoman would set about murdering Gotham's wealthy elite and frame Batman for the crime. There'd also be buried treasure hidden underneath Wayne Manor and 12-year-old orphan Robin would pop up too, but otherwise, Batman would be front and centre in a movie about Batman. Tim Burton, to put it bluntly, didn't like this script at all. He didn't like any of the ideas. And he didn't want to do another Batman sequel, and mostly because he wanted more creative control over the project. He was Tim Burton, and he wanted to make a Tim Burton Batman movie, not a Batman movie by Tim Burton. He just made the incredibly personal Edward Scissorhands, which, spoiler alert, is coming up very, very soon on this podcast. And by the time Warner Brothers approached Burton to direct the Batman sequel, Edward Scissorhands had given him his fourth consecutive box office hit. Warner Brothers, buoyant on the financial success that he delivered because of Batman, finally agreed to his terms. He could have his very Tim Burtonized Batman movie. He could have free reign on the project. He could have his choice of screenwriter in Heather's writer Daniel Waters. Michael Keaton would return for double his Batman salary. And he'd also insist on less screen time for Batman to focus on the tragic backstory of the Penguin, a character who could fully benefit from Tim Burton's ability to create and empathise with the freaks and to make him a tragic figure and the mirror image of Batman. Two men, both without parents, both with their own tragic backstories. It's even mentioned by Max Shrek in the movie how they could have actually been friends had Oswald's story been different. Daniel Waters was pivotal to the evolution of Oswald Cobblepot into a mayoral candidate and the character of Max Shrek, a villain without a costume or mask. And that was particularly important to show 
villains don't necessarily wear costumes and masks. He was also pivotal to the transformation of Selina Kyle from the femme fatale to a 90s feminist icon, completing the sexual awakening of both men and women in 1992. As a dowdy secretary becomes the ultimate in sexual fantasy, a character who both embraces and uses her femininity and sexuality, it was a change that Waters joked in 2005 that he was willing to, quote, lose the job over, unquote. And while Christopher Nolan is credited with making the literal Dark Knight dark again in 2005's Batman Begins, Batman Returns actually started that trend. Sam Hamm's original idea of a no-kill Batman was quickly changed into a Batman who literally murders several people. Dark times call for dark measures, and Daniel Waters' Batman would not be slapping the wrists of Gotham's elite criminals. In the end, Waters produced five revisions, all of which contained significant changes. Max Schreck was originally intended to be the character of Harvey Dent, played once again by Billy D. Williams. Catwoman's electro kiss at the end of Batman Returns would have left him with the scar and the split personality. But in a later script, Shrek was changed to play the Penguin's long-lost brother, a secret cobblepot, which was also scrapped. Inclusions of Robin were removed, and Waters later referred to Robin as the most worthless character in the world. So his and Burton's effort to create the character was, at best, half-hearted. Instead of a 12-year-old orphan, Robin was an adult mechanic who tended to the Batmobile and had even reached the point of casting, with Marlon Wayans cast in a two-picture deal before being removed from the script at the last minute. Wayans still gets residual checks, despite never once showing up on film as Robin. Joel Schumacher would later choose to replace Wayans with Chris O'Donnell for Batman Forever. The fact we almost got an African-American Robin in 1992 is kind of a big deal, despite the fact it never actually materialised. When it came to casting the rest of the movie, Waters had written Penguin with Danny DeVito in mind, and DeVito was persuaded to sign up on the advice of his close friend Jack Nicholson, the Joker himself. And we all remember his very generous compensation for his time on Batman. More on that in the previous episode on Batman. Annette Benning was cast as Selina Kyle until she felt pregnant. So the search was on for a replacement Catwoman. It was the hot role in Hollywood, and many actresses campaigned for it, including Jennifer Jason Leigh, Madonna, Bridget Fonda, and Cher. But you'll remember from episode 153 that Vicky Vale had been originally cast with Sean Young. She'd actually ended up being replaced by Kim Basinger due to a horse riding injury. Well, Sean Young, she was convinced that she was supposed to be Catwoman. So she made a surprise appearance on the Warner Brothers lot, wearing a homemade Catwoman outfit, with the intent of giving Burton an immediate audition by leaping over the sofa shouting, I am Catwoman. According to reports, the director fled behind his desk during what he later claimed to be a UFO sighting. Michelle Pfeiffer, a longtime fan of the character in the comics, was initially crushed to learn that Annette Benning had been cast. But Pfeiffer would instead get the role. She'd also get $2 million more than Annette Benning had been offered. She threw herself into mastering martial arts and the whip, and she would perform all of her own whip stunts. The character was so well received that at the very last minute, Warner Brothers opted to reshoot the ending to imply that Catwoman had survived, was still alive and well in Gotham, even though Catwoman was intended to die at the end of the film. This would give her the chance to appear in any upcoming sequels, or maybe get her own spin-off, because technically she still had one of her remaining lives left 
Obviously, goes without saying, we never saw this version of Catwoman ever again. The quick shot was of a standing dressed as Catwoman gazing up at the bat signal. This cost $250,000 to shoot, according to the Shadows of the Bat segment on the DVD. Unfortunately, the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman spin-off never happened. But really, that's a story for an episode on the Catwoman movie that we did get. So let me know on social media or email or whatever if you want to see an episode on the Catwoman movie that we did get at some point in the future, because I'm not opposed to doing it. Let's, let's just put it that way. Going back to the set at Pinewood Studios that Warner Brothers had purchased, and despite this preservation, they felt that it didn't fit the new aesthetic for Batman Returns. And additionally, Tim Burton didn't want to return to shoot in London. Previous set designer Anton First had committed suicide in 1991, and so Burton instead commissioned Bo Welsh to create the new Gotham set at Warner Brothers in California, including seven to eight sets plus stage 16 for Gotham Plaza and stage 12, including a 50-foot-tall stage at Universal Studios for Penguin's Arctic Layer, which featured a water tank filled with 1.9 million litres of water surrounding a faux ice island. He wanted Batman Returns to have American supporting actors and an American political subtext. He wanted this to be a completely different beast to Batman, a sequel in name only. Additionally, it was more cost-effective for him to film in California. Welsh had previously worked with Burton on Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, and he was influenced by German Expressionism, neo-fascist architecture, American precisionist painters of the 1920s, and S&M-style chains and steel elements based on Burton's sketches of Catwoman. He wanted to emphasise the vertical scale of a corrupt, decaying city, alienating the tiny people below. Live penguins were flown in on a refrigerated aeroplane and kept in a refrigerated area stocked with ice and fresh fish. And the penguins in this movie are supplemented by puppets by Stan Winston Studios, as well as little people in penguin suits. The actual real-life penguins were genuinely fitted with plastic appliances to represent weapons. And Peter protested the use of live penguins in Batman Returns and claimed they were mistreated, something that the production denied. The Penguin's army consisted of several real black-footed and king penguins, 30 penguin puppets ranging from 18 to 40 inches high, covered in dyed black chicken feathers. These were developed and operated by Stan Winston's special effects studio, plus four 40-pound emperor penguin suits inhabited by little people and computer-generated penguins developed by Boss Film Studios. This is the same visual effects studio that worked on Ghostbusters and Die Hard, the animatronic Emperor Penguins had remote-controlled mechanised heads and puppeteered wings. Batman Returns actually contains the first use of CG animals that are indistinguishable from reality in the photorealistic bats. The CGI in Batman Returns is also the first live-action Batman to use CG, the shield on the Batmobile being the most obvious example. The less obvious example is the bats themselves. Animating hundreds or thousands of individual birds flying in random formations is actually quite hard to do. So Craig Reynolds established a flocking model that consisted of three simple steering behaviours, separation, alignment and cohesion, based on observations of birds in urban settings. He called the model Boyd's. Boyd's wasn't just used for birds, it was also used for fish. And Andy Copert caught the attention of Reynolds' Boyd's model while working at Digital Effects Incorporated in New York and read Reynolds' SIGGRAPH paper from 1982. 
Copra was on the VFX team working on Batman Returns, and that movie needed computer-generated bat swarms as well as marching penguins. The penguins were handled by Boss Film using tools based on Reynolds' research. The bats were handled by Copra and the team at VIFX. Copra would specify the directional goals of the bat swarm and then render the bats using Renderman and an augmented bat model to have slightly taller ears than a normal bat. They were also coloured and naturally to help with extreme motion blur. Copra then created an animation cycle for the flapping of wings and each bat cycle would start at a random point but all would flop procedurally. To add realism in the scene where bats fly out of the Gotham City Christmas tree, Copra additionally animated the tree branches to distort slightly to suggest real bats were flying out of the tree. And speaking of real animals, the bird that Catwoman puts in her mouth was a real live bird. They did it in one take, and in retrospect, Pfeiffer probably wouldn't have put a live animal in her mouth. The core cast of this movie is costumed in blacks, whites and greys by costume designers Mary E. Voigt and Bob Ringwood. 48 foam rubber bat suits were made for Batman Returns, a redesigned bat suit to give the impression of mechanical parts, with genuine mechanical parts such as bolts and spikes to secure the cowl and cape. The original design included a zipped fly to allow Keaton to go to the bathroom, but it could be seen on camera, so it was removed at Keaton's insistence. Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman costume was made of black latex and was padded so as not to show too much in the way of nipples or genitalia, because that would be an instant X rating. The various stages of the Catwoman costume were designed and there were up to 70 backup costumes available, costing $1,000 each. Pfeiffer had to be covered in baby powder to get into costume, and each costume couldn't be reused because of sweat and body oil. Pfeiffer also occasionally suffered rashes from the costume, and it turns out it's really hard to stitch latex. Personally, I've never tried it. Stan Winston Studio also worked on the visuals for Danny DeVito's Penguin, careful to not obscure his face with any prosthetics. The final makeup on DeVito includes a T-shaped appliance covering his brow, lip and nose, in addition to crooked teeth and dark circles under his eyes. John Rosengrant and Shane Mayen created the makeup, which was applied by V. Neal. By the end of filming the four and a half hours it took to install DeVito's several pounds of facial prosthetics, body padding and prosthetic hats had been reduced to three hours. The costume was also given an air bladder to help lighten it. Using a mild mouthwash of food colouring that he squirted into his mouth before filming, DeVito worked with the makeup and effects crews to produce the penguin's black saliva. He claimed the taste was actually okay. And Danny DeVito method acted while in costume and remained in character the whole time. So much so that when he had to redub some lines out of costume, he actually struggled to find the character again. Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer are also covered in white makeup to give them a horrifying and pale complexion. DeVito's pale face is to contrast his dark saliva. Max Schreck was even given his name in commemoration of the actor who played Count Orlock in the film Nosferatu. And these decisions with makeup and costuming, along with the use of stark contrast by director of photography Stefan Zapsky, result in a movie set at Christmas that actually feels cold, as well as dark, depressing, and ties into its sexually expressive and dark themes. It skirts the line between PG-13 and R rating, while officially sitting in that accessible PG-13 window. But it did have to be edited for UK audiences, because apparently microwaving spray cans is the limit here. On its DVD release here in the UK, it was rated 15 instead of 12, mostly due to the special features. And speaking of 
sexually expressive and dark themes. I want to go into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And I'm going to be coming to awards, but this movie was nominated for a couple of BAFTAs and a couple of Oscars. And this movie would actually lose an Oscar to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, as you know, starred an impeccable performance by one Mr. Keanu Reeves. The movies were obviously out in the same year, so it completely makes sense that they would be vying for the same Oscar. But that is what the obligatory Keanu reference is all about. It's all about linking the movie that I feature to Keanu Reeves, just because I can. This being a Tim Burton movie, though, we can't really talk about a Tim Burton movie without talking about the Danny Elfman score. Because Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, they work together a lot. They don't always work together, but they do complement each other very well. Obviously, Danny Elfman was hired for 1989's Batman. He would be nominated for a Grammy for that score. And so he decided to use a lot of the same work for Batman Returns. He would expand on similar themes of eerie melancholy. He actually had fond memories of writing the score for the Penguin, specifically. He had a special affection for the scene in which the basket is floating down the river into the sewers and Penguin's carrying his body into the water. He would say, quote, I'm a huge sucker for that kind of sentimentality. Due to the pressure of completing Batman Returns on schedule, Burton and Elfman actually ended up having a falling out during production, but don't worry because they soon patched things up. This is where we start to get into the really interesting stuff about Batman Returns because when it came to the marketing and release of this movie, things start to get a little bit hot, a little bit sexy, shall we say. So the first teaser poster was a simple outline of Batman's head with the word Returns and the release date. This poster was actually heavily criticised by The Hollywood Reporter. It was called Mundane and it was replaced with a new one containing the traditional Batman logo under windswept snow and ice with the bat, the cat, the penguin above the logo, the film's full title and the release date below. Over 200 Batman Returns posters would be stolen from public places across the US. The first teaser trailer debuted at Show West in Las Vegas on the 19th of February 1992. Two days later, a 2 minute 35 second trailer was released in movie theatres. And when your previous movie literally changes the face of movie tie-ins and marketing, Batman Returns has the weight of hundreds of items of merchandise on its broad, muscular, bat-suited shoulders. The problem was, the darker tone of Batman Returns didn't translate very well to the merchandising opportunities Warner Brothers had in mind. And the most obvious ramification came from McDonald's, specifically a promotion for their Happy Meal toys. Now, if you've been living under a rock, you might not know McDonald's Happy Meals are definitely 100% aimed at children. Batman Returns, they're not aimed at children. And ads suggesting that kids could collect one of four Batman toy vehicles with their Happy Meals Made sense from a money-making point of view, because of course, a company like McDonald's wants to be associated with the hot summer movie of 1992. But then McDonald's executives saw the movie, and so did parents, who were none too happy that the penguin had black goo coming out of his nose and mouth. In retrospect, Warner Brothers giving free reign to a director like Tim Burton, who's known for the unique, the macabre, and of pushing the boundaries of what might be deemed family-friendly, in quotes was bound to cause some conflict with more conservative outlets. 
Over $100 million was spent on marketing Batman Returns, including partnerships with aforementioned McDonald's, who converted 9,000 outlets into the official restaurant of Gotham City, as well as other partners like Target, Kmart, and Sears, which had Batman shops in its stores. Batman and Catwoman fought over their favourite beverage, which is Diet Coke, by the way, and the now infamous Batman logo was once again everywhere. Batmania 2.0 was in full swing. Fewer companies were involved this time, but the number of products available echoed those available for Batman three years prior. But unlike last time, Warner Brothers was careful to release later and took stronger measures to protect against piracy and counterfeiting, using holographic hand tags and stickers to designate official products. Batman Returns was predicted to be the big movie of 1992, and other studios were careful not to release their temple movies around the same time. At the time, ticket sales were the lowest they'd been in 15 years, and studios were banking on the summer of 1992 to buoy their finances after several high-profile box office failures in 1991. Batman Returns premiered on the 18th of June 1992 before releasing wide on the 19th of June 1992. Its closest competitors at the time of its release were Systemworks, which had been out for four weeks, and Patriot Games, which had been out for three. Nothing else came out the week of Batman Returns, making its ascension to number one at the box office inevitable. It stayed there for a second week before being dethroned by the greatest sports movie of all time, A League of Their Own, which hit number one on the second week of release, up 310% on its previous week. So on an $80 million budget, Batman Returns made $162.9 million domestically in the US, $104 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $266.9 million. Although the film initially received favourable reviews and broke box office records, this time around there was a decline in audience attendance and the gross was 30-40% to 40% lower than Batman in 1989. Although Batman Returns was an undeniable success, it fell more than $145 million shy of the first film's earnings which prompted Warner Brothers to push for a far more toy-friendly direction for the franchise. Warner Brothers executives informed replacement director Joel Schumacher before he started the franchise that the studio had received hundreds of messages from parents saying that Batman Returns had scared their children. This led to the new director altering the direction of the Caped Crusader's big screen fate with Batman Forever in 1995 and Batman and Robin in 1997 neither of which Michael Keaton would return for after being unimpressed with the script for Batman Forever. Batman Returns did break Batman's record, $40.4 million, for the highest weekend debut in the month of June for a summer release, a superhero film, a PG-13 rated film, a Warner Brothers film, and of all time, and it did have the highest weekend debut of 1992, but unfortunately, because it fell short of the original financially, because it fell short of the original critically, and because people were generally quite unhappy with the content of this movie, that's how we ended up with Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Just in case you didn't know that. It does feel, though, that this movie has been critically, retrospectively reviewed better than it was at the time of its release. I feel like this is a movie that a lot of people now see as a genuinely great Batman movie, as well as actually a really good Christmas movie. It wasn't that it wasn't critically well-received at the time, because it was, but it was a little bit misunderstood at the time, I think. Retrospectively, 30 years later, I feel that a lot of critics, and I think a lot of film viewers just generally, 
on I've seen Batman Returns as actually being something of a unique superhero movie in that there's nothing like it and there will be nothing like it ever again. At the 46th British Academy Film Awards, Batman Returns was nominated for Best Makeup and Best Special Visual Effects, losing out to The Last of the Mohicans and Death Becomes Her, respectively. For the 65th Academy Awards, Batman Returns received the same two nominations, Best Makeup and Best Visual Effects, losing to Bram Stoker's Dracula and again to Death Becomes Her. Danny DeVito was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor at the 13th Golden Raspberry Awards. He would lose to Tom Selleck. And of course, I've briefly mentioned sequels, but Batman Forever in 1995 obviously replaced Burton with Joel Schumacher, Keaton with Val Kilmer. Batman and Robin in 1997 retained Joel Schumacher, replaced Kilmer with George Clooney. The planned fifth Batman movie, Batman Unchained, was cancelled in the wake of the poor response to Batman and Robin. And of course, in 2005, it was rebooted in the critically and financially successful Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan. Batman Begins, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight would also go on to win two Academy Awards, including a posthumous Best Supporting Actor Oscar for the late Heath Ledger. And in 2016, Batman was rebooted again for the DCEU with Ben Affleck taking the role in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, Cameo in Suicide Squad and in Justice League and Zack Slider's Justice League. Affleck is due to be Batman one last time in the film The Flash alongside Michael Keaton, who is his timeline's version of Bruce Wayne, with Affleck as The Flash's version of Bruce Wayne. And obviously Robert Pattinson also starred as Batman and Bruce Wayne in Matt Reeves' The Batman. Not to be confused with any other Batmans because this is another universe version of Batman. So there's multiple universe versions of Batman. Michael Keaton was also due to reprise the role of Batman in the movie Batgirl, which would have starred Leslie Grace as Barbara Gordon. But that movie has unfortunately since been cancelled by Warner Brothers. Let's go into some social media thoughts. So I like to find out on Patreon. And all across social media, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and now also Hive as well. And Mastodon, even though I don't think I've got any on Mastodon, but I've joined Hive and Mastodon. So they're going to be included in social media comments. We're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Pete. And Pete says, We will never have another villain quite like Danny DeVito as the penguin, oozing sludge from his mouth, army of emperor penguins behind him, and we will never surpass the raw, dark sexuality of Michelle's Catwoman. Together they easily steal the show, as I barely even remember Batman in this, except as a plaything for Catwoman. And Middle Class Film Class is hosted by Pete and also Joseph and Tyler. Because I like to promote patrons and their podcasts, I would absolutely love for you to listen to Middle Class Film Class. It is a weekly movie news and reviews podcast. And I will put some information in the show notes for that podcast. We also have a patron comment from Ali. And Ali says, This may be called Batman Returns. And everybody loves Michael. Let's get nuts, Keaton. But this film belongs to Michelle Pfeiffer. What a Catwoman. I remember feeling so sick at the cinema when Danny DeVito ate the fish as the penguin. On a recent rewatch, it felt a tad dated. But it's still dark, moody, fabulous stuff. And perennial commenter Andy returns. On Batman Returns, to say, I will forever hold Batman Returns up as being best Batman movie ever made. It maintains a comical darkness without coming across as campy or edgelordy like most other attempts at filming The Dark Knight. Allowing Tim Burton to make a Tim Burton movie but with Batman gives the movie the legs it needs to stretch the themes of diversity, inclusion and individualism. It goes without saying that Michelle Pfeiffer is the absolute queen of the movie, showing vulnerability and strength 
her Selena Kyle absolutely steals the film. I've taken heat for saying this before, but I honestly don't think the straightforward fat guy in a tux version of the penguin would have flown, which we all know penguins can't do, in 1992. Danny DeVito's grotesque take on the character gives us a deeper look at a creature shunned by society and his parents and really does a good job of not making him a pale comparison of Nicholson's Joker and a one-dimensional agent of chaos. With a score by Danny Elfman that outshines the original, Batman Returns is one of the best comic book movies ever made and easily the best Batman movie. And as always, completely agree with everything that you've said, Andy. Because Andy is one of the biggest geeks that I know and there's not a lot that he doesn't know about geeky stuff. So you can find him at his podcast. It's called Geek Salad. And they basically talk about all things geek. It's a fascinating podcast. I'll put information in the show notes so you can listen to Geek Salad in your podcast app of choice. We have a patron comment from Brendan who says, Batman Returns is everything interesting about Batman 89 turned to 11. That doesn't make all of it great, but it makes enough of it spectacular and singular and intoxicatingly memorable enough to stand the test of time as a defining genre sequel. Another patron comment from Zoe who says, the actors were super committed. DeVito ate a raw fish. Pfeiffer put a live bird in her mouth. And if you are interested, Zoe has his own podcast. He is the host of the Backlook Cinema podcast, where he basically introduced his son, Zach, to the movies that he watched when he was young. And basically, Zach gives his opinion. I will put some information in the show notes about Backlook Cinema. We also have a patron comment from Nicholas, who says, Batman 89 is still my favourite, but Returns is up there. A gothic, weird Christmas film which actually manages to balance all its characters alongside amazing set designs and yet again a fantastic Danny Elfman score. The final patron comment is from Derek who says, This is a very strange, very dark movie that has Batman being a mass murderer, Penguin deconstructing American urban politics as a mix of government, gangs and business interests, Catwoman exposing the implicit repressed sexuality of superhero movies, a perverse take on Exodus where Penguin takes the first sons of wealthy Gothamites, oh and the whole thing is at Christmas. Not sure how or even why it works, but my goodness it does. And if you basically want an in-depth look into pop culture with things like a historical, mythological and philosophical lens, then you should absolutely listen to Derek and his wife Laurel's podcast, The Midnight Myth. I will put some information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth, and it's a podcast that's very well worth your time. We're going to move over to Twitter, and we're going to start with at Kevin underscore the critic, who says, Tim Burton at his craziest. I like how it views Batman as being as crazy as the people he fights, nails the tragedy of the relationship between him and Catwoman, and it's wonderfully campy. At KMAC Music said, My favourite of the pre-Nolan Batman films. At Russ Loves Movies said, Batman Returns is wonderful. Dark, sexy, monstrous. It is the best Batman, Christmas and superhero film ever made. At Catching Cinema says, Aesthetically sleeker and more cohesive than 89, Returns is a gorgeous refinement of the themes and motifs introduced in the prior film. One of Elfman's best scores, the music serves as an ode to the characters, an opera that illustrates the narrative divorced from the visuals. The most Tim Burton-y of Batman films, Returns proudly bears many of the filmmaker's trademark themes and concepts, framing escapes as odd but misunderstood monsters. Returns slightly points to the duplicitous suit and squares of the city being the true evil. 
a triumph. At Tapwater, Alice said, Prose, amazing visuals and production design, Keaton and Pfeiffer together are fire. Cons, arguably the most pervy and grotesque Batman movie, driven almost exclusively by ill-defined character arcs, two and a half stars. At Dissect That Film said, It's one of the greatest Batman movies of all time. The performances all around are spectacular, especially Michelle Pfeiffer as Selina Kyle, aka Catwoman. It's gothic Burton at his best, and who doesn't love that amazing Danny Elfman score? I love this movie. At Swayze of Arabia said, Batman Returns takes the world of Gotham City that Tim Burton created and improved on it. The set pieces are more gothic looking in this than they are in the 1989 Batman. The performances from all the actors are great, and I love the darker tone of the movie too. At Logmatician said, Often overlooked in the Batman movie canon, this sequel can hold its own against some of the best Batman films. A grisly aesthetic, memorable villain performances and a deft directorial hand, Batman Returns holds up to this day and beyond. At Bigger Movie Pod said, Absolutely incredible, one of the best Batman films. Words from at 1986 Matt Sales 15, also a good Christmas film, question mark. Yes, it is a good Christmas film, Matt. At Joshy McSquashy said, I think that I would have loved to have been in the McDonald's Happy Meal toy department when it came out. At Adriana in Bloom said, it's a Christmas movie. Yes, it is. At Colby Told Me said, one of the greatest sequels and holiday movies ever. At Big Chaunce 64 said, love it. At D.W. Nunberg said, Surely the worst, the 90s glut of comic book movies that completely misconstrues its source material while also being the strongest and most fascinating of all 90s comic book movies for all that. I love it as a Tim Burton movie, even if I don't recognise any of it as Batman. At Films on Wax said, I think it has a great score and it's very good in places, but occasionally just feels like too much. At Paul Klein Yu said, I love it. It's ridiculous, completely out there, full Tim Burton madness. At Film 8 List said, Still the best Batman film, in my honest opinion. At Epic Film Guy said, One of the greatest Batman movies of all time. At Filler Instinct said, Flawed masterpiece. Asks questions it never cares to answer and sidelines its hero for stretches so Burton can indulge his best and worst tendencies. Even with that, it's maybe his best directing job and mostly gets Batman better than any of this era's outings for The Dark Knight. Now, I actually had to stop Twitter comments for this movie early because there were so many people who wanted to get involved. So we're going to move over to Instagram because we're going to continue with the comments and there have been so many comments for Batman Returns. We're going to start with at Diabolical Pod, who said, One of the wildest villain plans in superhero movies. You have to admire just how far they pushed Penguin being a gross, child-murdering lunatic. I didn't really enjoy it on original release. I would have been 11 or 12 years old. Now I love its twisted take on the characters and world. At Sassy Lassie 76 said, When I first saw this, I was so excited to see Michelle as Catwoman. I have been a fan of her since I was 12 years old. First time I saw Grease too. And while I already knew Keaton would knock it out of the park as the it was Pfeiffer's performance I was most excited for and she did not disappoint. This remains one of my favourite Pfeiffer and Keaton films. And Tara, gotta love the love for a little bit of Grease too there. At Old Man Petey Pops said, Definitely my favourite of the Goth Hingle quadrilogy. 
the cast, the dialogue, the pitch black tone, Happy Meals notwithstanding. Uh, it's indecent the amount of candle holding I do for this film, but it's worth it. At Burton Batfan said, I look forward to your episode and I hope you get to do a deep dive into some of the characters, including the supporting characters. Something I love about this era of Batman films, including the Red Triangle Circus Gang, the Ice Princess, Chip Shrek and Joss and Jen, the Image Consultants. Now, unfortunately, I don't really deep dive into characters in movies, especially supporting characters, but I hope you like the episode. Anyway, at J.M. Mickenham said, Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer are a solid match with great chemistry. And at Tamed by Darkness said, hands down, the best Batman movie. Moving over to Facebook, we have Tony who said, Batman Returns was an excellent sequel to 1989's Batman. Michael Keaton knocked it out of the park as Batman. Michelle Pfeiffer was stunning as Catwoman, whilst Danny DeVito was at his creepiest as the Penguin. The cast worked perfectly together. The plot was a bit campy, but that's what made it fun. All in all, a good Christmas movie. And we have a comment on Hive. The first one ever on Hive, and that is at Switch Envelope, who said, Batman Returns has two of the best villain origin depictions in the whole of the franchise. DeVito and Pfeiffer are both great. Hard to imagine what could have been with Annette Benning in the catsuit because Pfeiffer made the role so iconic. The movie sort of runs away from its more gothic starting point towards a more cartoonish climax, or at least a more Batman 66 tone, when we get actual penguins armed with rockets. Still, Batman in Winter is a vibe, and one that we wouldn't get again until Nolan's Dark Knight Rises. And just a phenomenally huge response on Batman Returns. Thank you so much to everyone, to the patrons, to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and Hive for your comments on Batman Returns. Batman Returns is now seen as the second of Tim Burton's bizarre alternative Christmas trilogy together with Edward Scissorhands and The Nightmare Before Christmas in addition to being a sequel to Batman. It should be noted, of course, that Henry Selick actually directed The Nightmare Before Christmas, despite the fact it's called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm going to come to that in a future episode because both of these movies are coming up this month. It's a total coincidence. In all honesty, Batman Returns was never meant to come out on this podcast in December. And so it just so happens that there's a lot of Tim Burton this December on Verbal Diorama. The movies are actually also going to be released out of release order for reasons that are going to become apparent, I hope when it comes to towards the end of December. And Batman Returns has a cruelty to it because it begins with infanticide. It includes Christmas time kidnappings and culminates with an attempt mass kidnapping of children. It's not a Christmas movie in the traditional sense of family and togetherness because these are lonely, isolated characters who even together are lonely and isolated. And Bruce, more so than anything, Vicky Vale is gone and he's waiting for the bat signal just to give himself something to do. Christmas iconography is everywhere in Batman Returns. When the Christmas tree lights are first turned on, the Red Triangle gang attacks Gotham by bringing a massive wrapped gift to the town square. You can see people shopping for Christmas, moving up and down the street, bundled up in coats, the ground covered in snow, characters routinely discussing the upcoming holidays and what they're going to be doing. Even the penguin himself, the antagonist, is hidden among penguins in the ruins of the Gotham Zoo. And that is almost polar-themed as well, if you think about, you know, the fact that Santa lives at the North Pole. Gotham City is all about commercialism and consumer excess. 
Max Schreck positions himself as the selfless, gift-giving businessman to appeal to the public, when in reality he's actually the selfish, greedy, power-hungry mogul. Not unlike any other corrupt businessmen in real life that could possibly roll off our tongues right now. The Penguin claims to just want to be with his family, but actually, he just wants power and revenge. And he does it while wearing his freakishness with a sense of pride that Bruce has never actually had. Selena Kyle actually does want the cookie-cutter family life. And as Catwoman, she's open, flirty, sexual, and not afraid to dominate the men around her. And to me, it kind of talks to the fact that women wear a lot of masks. Whether that's simply the mask of daughter, sister, mother, friend, or lover, or something more than that. Each one, Selena portrays a different version of her. The reason this iteration of Catwoman still appeals 30 years later is that we can all recognise the power of hiding behind a mask. It gives Bruce and Selena a shared experience that comes to a head when they realise who each other actually is and the great pains they've gone to to hide their scars from each other. Look at it this way. How much easier is it to flirt and be openly sexual behind a mask or behind a phone or behind a laptop screen? Christmas can be a lonely time for many people. And Batman Returns might not be the top of your festive movie watching, but it does something many Christmas movies don't. It shows what it's like to be without Christmas. And I think that's why it endures. Christmas movies are rarely this brave. And Batman movies certainly aren't. At least, not anymore. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Batman Returns. And you can give me those thoughts by getting in touch with me on social media where you can also retweet and like posts if you like what I do post. So you can find me at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Hive and Mastodon. You can also tell your friends and family about this podcast or about this episode. And if you really, really did like this podcast and you want to leave a five-star review, you can do so on places like Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify. Basically, wherever you found this podcast, you can leave a rating or review for it. And if you like this episode specifically on Batman Returns, you might also like the following movies slash episodes. So, of course, I'm going to recommend a whole host of Tim Burton stuff because I've covered a lot of Tim Burton on this podcast. I'm going to start with episode 94, Beetlejuice, because Beetlejuice is one of my favourite Tim Burton movies. And really, if Warner Brothers were thinking, what is a Tim Burtonized version of Batman going to be like? Well, they really didn't need to go any further than Beetlejuice. I absolutely adore Beetlejuice. I think it's an absolutely wonderful movie. I think it's a wonderful story about the afterlife. And it gives us actually a fairly nuanced perspective of what the afterlife could actually be like if it were real, because let's be honest, none of us know if it is or not. Episode 135, Corpse Bride, because Corpse Bride is a Tim Burton stop-motion movie. It's absolutely beautiful. It's especially popular on this podcast for some reason. Corpse Bride seems to be so popular on the downloads. I don't know why. I guess people love Corpse Bride and it is a truly stunning piece of work. Obviously, animation done by Leica as well. So you know it's going to have the quality behind it. And of course, episode 153 on Batman, which is a massive precursor to this episode. Ideally, you would listen to both episodes one after the other. But if you haven't listened to Batman and you're thinking, I want to go listen to that episode on Batman, then you absolutely should listen to that episode on Batman because it was one of my favourite episodes that I did in the Little Heroes Across the Decade season that I did back in April, May time. I really enjoyed looking into Batman. 
So I've already alluded to the fact that I've spoiled pretty much all of my December output by telling you that Tim Burton is returning not once but twice in December on this podcast, completely unintentionally, I'll be honest. But he's going to be returning next because the next episode is going to be on Edward Scissorhands. I was always going to do Edward Scissorhands for Christmas on Verbal Diorama. It's a movie that I'd wanted to do for such a long time. It's a movie that I completely adore. I love everything about Edward Scissorhands, from the look of it, to the feel of it, to the candy-coloured pastiche of it. It was always going to be a December movie on this podcast. And then Batman Returns got bumped up. And you know what the other Tim Burton movie is, because I mentioned it in this episode. That is going to be coming towards the end of December. So it's not going to be a completely Tim Burton month. But there's going to be a lot of Tim Burton in December. So hopefully you're a fan of Tim Burton. <laughs> Let's be honest. Hopefully you'll come back next week for the second Christmassy episode of Bubble Diorama this December, going from Batman Returns into the movie that Tim Burton did before Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands. And just the mere fact that you're listening to this episode right now means that you are supporting this podcast. So thank you so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. If you do want to support the show financially, you can do at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join the amazing patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali and Tyler. Honestly, you patrons are catnip to a girl like me. You can check out my merch store at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me and say hi by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and you can find my website. And you can also find me at filmstories.co.uk. You can find copies of the magazine that I write for and articles online by me as well. And finally... A kiss under the mistletoe. You know, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. I guess it can be even deadly. Oh my god. Does this mean we have to start fighting? Let's go outside. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All That's right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. That's right, I am. My, my trans has no power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>